Welcome to the Mental Models Podcast. I'm George Baxter, and I'm a hedge fund manager for SaberPoint Capital Management. I'm Dan Krawczyk. I'm a neuroscientist and professor at the University of Texas at Dallas. And together we explore mental models. That is how we view the world and what the world gives us for feedback. It's not a brain in a jar. That's the gist. All right, George, how are you doing today? Oh, I'm all right. How are you doing, Dan? Very good. So we uh, talk about numbers uh, in this podcast from time to time, and the advice is often try to assign probabilities to things, try to quantify wherever you can. Of course, that's quite difficult to translate our subjective impressions into numbers, but uh, it's important to know some statistics. And so today's topic is going to be about mean reversion, or also known as regression to the mean, which is a topic that goes back uh, quite some ways in the history of science. Um, Francis Galton is uh, a name that comes up in the history of regression to the mean, and he was working on these sort of relatedness problems, uh, sort of like Gregor Mendel. He was looking at pea plants and their height, and he would uh, try to discern what's the probability of an extra tall uh, offspring based on the, uh, the heredity. And so uh, in doing that kind of work, um, you start to realize that when you quantify complex systems, there are some trends that are important to notice and that the longer you sample, you can uh, gain more data and those trends can be leveraged if you know about them. Yeah, yeah. This is an interesting problem that was addressed by Nassim Taleb in his Fooled by Randomness and then later in The Black Swan. Uh, some of the complications associated with trying to apply a statistical analysis that long-term capital management is one example where you had some Nobel laureate people like Byron Scholes and uh, John Merriweather, who uh, would originally was associated with Salman, was kicked out when uh, Salman had its uh, treasury scandal that erupted that where Warren Buffett had to step in. But anyway, they had mathematically based formulas that they tried to apply uh, through a quantitative model to make money, and ultimately it blew up. And uh, there's some important reasons why. So to get some uh, basics out of the way, in behavioral sciences and in the neurosciences, we are constantly looking at data streams. Uh, we often look at data in a sort of a short-term way. So when you run experiments with people, we're often kind of just capturing some snapshot of their behavior or their brain activation or their speed of behavior. And uh, in order to make sense of that, you need what's known as a large sample. So if you're looking at an individual's behavior, you'd want a lot of samples over time in order to, to determine what are some characteristics that are uh, more intrinsic to the person. In the case of the uh, sort of snapshot case, you, you want to have a large sample like if you're comparing two or three groups, you need to have a big sample size because outliers can really skew what's occurring. And if you have too few observations and you happen to get an outlier, that's a big problem. And so an outlier comes from the distribution. When you have a normal distribution or bell curve, uh, you've got a lot of cases stacked up in the middle. And as you move toward the periphery, you get into fewer and fewer cases. Those are known as outliers, and there are exceptional performers or exceptional quantities at the very high and very low end. It's just that there's not very many of them. So if you don't sample adequately, you run the risk of really getting a uh, what's known as a skewed sample. You can make a lot of errors. And so 
basic statistics requires that you have an adequate sample size and can also look at something known as effect size and can essentially determine if you have enough samples to warrant a certain conclusion. But you always have to keep in mind that you may have an error based largely on having too few samples. Also, it's important to know whether the data set is subject to a normal distribution. Like one example that uh, I've seen before is if you look at a collection of people who, uh, where you're looking at their weight, well, that's going to be normally distributed. Assuming that you have a large enough sample side, size, you should have something of a bell curve uh, for people's weight. But then if we wanted to look at something like wealth, and we look at the average American and how much wealth they have, but we throw in Bill Gates, who has billions of dollars, and his, his one data point can massively shift the entire distribution because it's just, it is many, many, many multiples larger than the average data point. Yeah, so variability is key. With uh, samples that are highly homogeneous, you know, height is another good example people aren't going to vary that much. And so you have some level of, it's manageable. You kind of have a tractable sense of uh, what you're dealing with by way of variance. Uh, Something like wealth can have huge variance. And so you can run experiments with smaller sampling if you have low variability data that are normally distributed. The problem is when we talk about uh, a lot of the interesting uh, areas of life, uh, investing included, you can have problems where you don't really know the distribution and it's hard to really get a sense of whether you have a very a highly variable situation or not. So that, that brings us to one of our first pieces of advice is you've got to have uh, a, a wide sort of angle lens on the time distribution of something. More data points is better. You can often notice some trend that over the long term presents itself when in the short term Uh, you might have just gotten unlucky and sampled at an extreme time point, which can mislead your analysis. There's no doubt. And it is not something where there's always precision. You don't always have uh, the luxury of having a large enough data set. So it's a mixture of some assessment of what is reasonable and then also whatever data points that you can use to try to extrapolate. But you can't put too much weight on that. Another thing to remember is uh, there's an old adage that a man can drown in a stream that on average is only three feet high. That's right. That's a nice lead in any fluid data set that changes over time, much like this fabled river with its perilous depths. You can have this phenomenon of variance. So the variance tends to be somewhat high. And when you find that sort of outlier, something at the uh, upper end or lower end of a distribution if you're sampling repeatedly, uh, as you would in a time series, more often than not, you're going to have the extremes move toward the middle, and that's its mean reversion. And uh, this happens, we spin little narratives about this. So in, in sports, there's often someone will have a great rookie year, and they suffer next year from the sophomore jinx, which is this whole idea that they somehow were cursed in their performance. What might really be going on is they were they just had a good year, and it's talent, but it's also probably some of the circumstances. If you keep sampling a player throughout their career, they're going to have ups and downs. When they have an exceptionally great year, they're likely to kind of regress back to 
their median performance because again you're getting sort of an artificial sample where at that moment they happen to be an outlier so the complexity that we see in securities analysis from a fundamental standpoint is that some issues are going to be more subject to mean reversion than others so if you think about for instance something that is very narrative based it's based on very high revenue growth you could see greater fluctuation or more intense movement away from the mean than you might see in in terms of stock price than you might see from a value stock where there is a pretty good notion as to what the value is and that if there is some negative sentiment that comes uh, into play, cyclical characteristics or something of that nature ultimately will bring it closer to the mean and it won't have as much variance around that mean. That is one of the tricky parts of investing is that sentiment can influence price. And so it's maybe not something the company is fundamentally doing even, you know, just somehow there's just a negative moving sense about it. That's a little bit different than what we've talked about. Like with sports performance, it's pretty easy to quantify and there's a lot of statistics on that. You have to be kind of careful about what the data set look like and what are the factors that drive variability. And we're always trying to get a handle on that because in complex situations, there are many, many factors. So that's again, a warning sign of not being too certain that you understand the future because complex systems, our brains are overwhelmed by that complexity and will tend to uh, read patterns into the data that may not be there. So uh, you had said that word patterns a little while ago. We are overactive pattern finders and we're very bad at dealing with random data. Humans don't process randomness particularly well. We look for some kind of streak or some kind of pattern in data sets. So even if data are not fully random, if there's some level of randomness, we will tend to overinterpret. And we do so in that predictable manner, which we've talked about before in this podcast, uh, where we tend to gravitate toward evidence that supports our analysis trends that look like they're working, and we tend to underweight or devalue those trends that don't support our analysis. Sure. And that was a a subject of our confirmation bias podcast, which I think was a pretty elaborate description of that particular effect. One way that we can kind of step away or at least mitigate some of the issues associated with the random nature of a lot of issues is to try to focus on issues where we feel like we can isolate the variables. That's right. So uh, knowing what those variables are is going to be critical. I'm reminded of a couple of colorful examples from when I was in graduate school. I took a memory class, and I was pretty motivated, and I studied a lot, but it was kind of class where they were only going to test you on a a small subset of the information because it was just huge literature. And so I vividly remember getting the top score in the class on the first exam, and I was quite pleased and quite ready to take credit for that. Wow, I'm I'm doing well. I didn't change my study habits as far as I can remember. 
second exam comes along and I was in the bottom three of the class. And I think that was just regression to the mean. You know, it wasn't that I was exceptionally great on the first test and exceptionally terrible on the second. The nature of the exam was a sampling, right? It was like I got lucky with the sampling of the questions on the first one. And I unfortunately got unlucky on the second one. Um, I'm also reminded of a statistics professor I had who, uh, when I'd when I'd really done poorly on our first exam in stats, uh, he comforted me by saying, regression to the mean will probably bring your score up next time. And so uh, <laughs> that was little comfort, of course, and it, it motivated more studying. But uh, that is the, uh, the phenomenon. And uh, you can be wary of this. Uh, I think just a practical solution for um, mean reversion is just to bear in mind that you don't have all the data and data are constantly being generated, and you know, knowing your assumptions and just being a, an infovore of sorts, and just just taking in as much uh, of the variable information as possible, and probably following price over longer time windows is smart practice. Yeah, no, there's definitely the case that you you can take a look at price over very long periods of time. It's reflected in the wisdom that was shared with by Benjamin Graham. When he said that in the short term, the market is a voting machine, but in the long term, the market is a weighing machine. We'll often pull up charts of stocks that we're looking at and compare them to the averages over very long stretches of time, 10 years, 20 years, and see, does it look like this is a business that has created value? I can give you some instance of, or some notion as to whether there may be a competitive advantage that is present. One thing that I do think is important in this notion when you're thinking about data is to think about the variables that you feel like, A, you can identify, B, you can actually quantify those variables and their importance, and C, what the magnitude is of their occurrence or lack thereof. If you can answer those questions, then that's an investment that you may be able to properly come up with an assessment of what your downside is, what the probability of success is, and your likely return. That's really what we're stretching for. Often, you'll find people that go, you'll find investments where it's very dependent upon a macro variable that is very, very difficult to understand, like oil prices or perhaps the movement of interest rates. Those are variables that typically are subject to a number of different inputs that are difficult to quantify and understand, and they shift all of the time based off of demands uh, or global factors affecting supply and demand. So that would be a case where you wouldn't want to read too much into price movement because there's some other force, a quantifiable force in some cases, that's actually driving that rather than management performance or or something else that seems more causal? Yeah, sometimes that can be identified by doing a simple regression analysis. You just you look at the relationship between whatever the factor is and the stock price. Now, if you find that the stock has a very strong correlation with just oil, then perhaps that's that's just a proxy bet on oil. So maybe that would be one that you would avoid. Or at least try to isolate the variable you think that's important, and then you could hedge out the variable that you feel like you don't quite have a grasp on. 
Another uh, analogy to sports, I can think of another mean reversion case in daily life. So if uh, you grew up in Buffalo, New York, like I did, we have this hockey team called the Sabres, who are notably in the bottom of the league year after year. And this past season, they had a 10-game win streak, which is an anomaly for anybody. And I remember the reports coming out, the Sabres are good. Uh, However, they were also sort of, if you look closely at the numbers, they were winning a lot of their games by one goal, and they tended to be winning in overtime, and those aren't typically the markers of a dominant team, so they were probably getting sort of lucky along the way. Sure enough, uh, that 10-game win streak was a complete anomaly. They they struggled the rest of the season, missed the playoffs, and, uh, you know, it just kind of goes back to People wanted to find the pattern that the rebuild had worked. They were now successful. But if you analyze the the goal differential, it didn't support this sort of win total. So I think that's, once again, it's just an outlier masquerading as, you know, a structural improvement in quality of play in that case. And we find these in all types of uh, situations, especially ones where uh, there's variability and you don't really have enough of the either the supporting data or enough of the the time points to draw the pattern so be very careful in in concluding that a certain trend is is truly a pattern and be wary about applying a cause effect analysis to any one factor unless you have a very good handle on it sometimes though you don't have the luxury of having a broad number of data points that you can look at And there can be some information that can be derived from very limited data points. But again, you don't want to put too much emphasis on it. There's a good book, and I can't quite remember the author's name, but it's called How to Measure Anything that deals with decision-making with limited data. And the idea is basically that you may not come up with precise percentage probabilities, but you can come up with a range. Like, for instance, uh, if I were to ask the average person, how many countries are there in Africa? Well, they know there's more than one, and they know that there's less than a 1,000. That's a very broad range. And you can go through a process where you narrow that range and come up with a probability distribution where you said something like, I think with a 90% confidence interval, meaning that if you and I were to bet uh, that uh, I would put up $10 to your $1, Uh, that I'm right, that there are more than 10 countries in Africa and less than 200. That's a much narrower scope than I initially had, and we could continue to practice narrowing that scope, and that in and of itself could provide you with some information that can assist you in making an investment decision. Right, and that same advice is applied in the book Super Forecasters, uh, the old question, how many piano tuners are there in Chicago, right? It seems like an unanswerable question, but uh, the advice in that kind of context, um, super forecasters were people that were exceptionally good at quantifying things based on probabilities and, and distributions in the environment. And so that's not a totally unanswerable question. You won't get it exact, but you know it's not... 10 million, and you know it's not one. And you can kind of uh, read more into the situation, try to take into account different factors you know, like the population of Chicago, the population that likely own a piano, and so on. And you can do that with real-world problems as well. And you may not get the exact answer, but you'd have gone a long way toward quantifying something which would be mysterious otherwise. Yeah, so I guess 
one thing that we can step away from here and kind of drawing back, I mentioned long-term capital management before. There you had John Merriweather and Myron Scholes and I believe Charlie Black. They were all associated with that particular investment vehicle, which was a darling of Wall Street. And the idea was they were going to apply mathematical formulas to quantitative investing and generate significant risk-adjusted returns. And of course, eventually what happened is you had the Russian bond crisis, and that led to them with a very levered portfolio, eventually having to be bailed out with the assistance of the Federal Reserve. So mathematics believe it or trying to trust them to come to the right answer all of the time. There's just a lot of uncertainty and variability in some cases, non-Gaussian distributions of data when you're looking at securities analysis, but it's not to be discarded completely either. It should merely at least be informative when you're trying to make an assessment, but you always have to leave the door open that you can have an undesirable outcome. And that brings us to uh, a trend that's going on uh, with, it's called data mining, where there are just these algorithm approaches that can be applied, uh, with the realization being that uh, the human brain is uh, one type of data mining machine that uh, happens to impose meaning on a lot of things. And the reverse of that is is a synthetic uh, agent. And some of the thought there, algorithms have uh, distinct advantages. They don't over-search for patterns. They don't use a top-down approach as we do. They can, in some sense, use a bottom-up approach. Let the data speak to you is another phrase I've heard. People have a hard time doing this. Algorithms do it all the time. Between the two of them, there may be some additional strength. So I think uh, you know, algorithmic approaches, when complemented appropriately by moderate humans, can maybe be one answer in the future. It is interesting. And uh, maybe that's a whole talk for another podcast, but I often find as uh, active uh, managers that we are often competing against the indexes and index investing and the machines, which are responsible for a lot of the volume, a lot of the algorithmic trading. And one of the advantages we have are in the qualitative analysis. For instance, if you have the opportunity to talk to people within industry, talk to management, and learn about trends that are occurring within industry that are more qualitative in nature, then we may be able to anticipate changes in patterns of earnings that are on the horizon that the machines can't see. That's an optimistic point to end on. So to recap, we've talked about mean reversion, but we've talked a lot about quantification in general. Getting a good sense of a data set, you know, sort of moving around in the data, grabbing onto trends and and being skeptical, though, as you do so, so you don't overimpose expectations on data. The bigger the sample size, the more accurate you're likely to be. It's important to remember outliers are are there and somewhat getting a sense of the variability of any any information is going to be key to spotting those outliers and not overinterpreting them. There's lots of examples in markets. I don't know, George, any last words of advice? No, I think you've wrapped it up pretty well, Dan. I think uh, it's time to pull the plug. Sounds good. Thank you for spending your time listening to the Mental Models podcast. Content matters because your brain does not exist in a jar. 
please subscribe. Visit mentalmodelspodcast.com for updates on Dana George's upcoming book release titled Understanding Behavioral Bias, A Guide to Improving Financial Decision Making. Also available on mentalmodelspodcast.com are show notes, book reviews, and upcoming behavioral finance seminars with Dan and George. The Mental Models Podcast can be found on SoundCloud, iTunes, iHeartRadio, and Twitter. Please subscribe, and thank you for listening.